Hi everyone. This is a great room. This is sort of like a bit of echo, which is nice. Um, so I've been asked to explain this drug squad thing. So the first thing is I've brought no drugs with me, I'm sorry. Um, when I first started in, in my sort of career, I joined the customs department and uh, I was a skinny bloke with long hair down to here. I look like a sort of a, a broom or a mop. Um, and anyway, they decided that I looked like I was out of my tree, so they put me into the drug squad. And um, I, I, kind of, I was kind of good at it. So um, we used to collect all this information and, um, and then catch the bad guys. And so I was the sort of link between the undercover guys up at the cross and Customs House. Then they gave me the keys to the, um, to the safe where all the drugs were kept. <laughs> I only finished them recently. <laughs> um, but it, what, this, what that job actually did is taught me how to spot bullshit because um, you're dealing with people that are lying to you all the time. So it was really a good life lesson. Um, the reason why I moved is a mate of mine had a company car and a business card. And I asked him, how did you get those two things? And he, and he said, I work for a finance company. I didn't even know what a finance company was. And I said, what do you have to do? He said, oh, you lend in the morning, collect it in the afternoon. I thought, that's bloody easy. When, <laughs> when do you get the car? And uh, he said, oh, two years or something. So I joined uh, this finance company. And within six months, I had the car. And it was great. I didn't really know what to do apart from drive the car around. And, <laughs> But that taught me another lesson because once again, I was talking to people that are lying to me. There's a trend. Because if you lend money in the morning and you have to collect it, in, not the same people, but you collect money in the afternoon, people are doing little fibbies with you. So that was an interesting role. Um, then I fast forward, I sort of finance company led me into, the finance company actually became a bank. Do you remember Barclays Bank You know, in England? They came out here and became a bank and Paul Keating opened my branch for me. And everybody hated him, but they all came. <laughs> and he was the best speaker I've ever seen. Wow. It was amazing. He just had people in his hands. And if you went, did you see the Opera House um, tribute to Bob Hawke where Keating got up mm, yeah. and he got a standing ovation? He still got it. Amazing orator. Um, so that was sort of finance, and then uh, one day somebody said, the new wave is not to lend money, it's actually to take money from people and put it into super. And I thought, oh wow, this is good. It's much easier to take it than to lend it. Uh, and so I got into this world of super and started to understand how all that worked. And then I sort of went back into banking. Somehow or another, they made me in charge of the private bank at St George. Um, which was good because I couldn't really find it. It was that little private place so you couldn't find it. Um, but once again, I, I sort of learnt some really life skills in, in a private bank because um, you sort of learn that you're dealing with people's secrets. Because people go to private banks with all sorts of secrets. So um, I was good at secrets, so I, I did okay there. Anyway, long story short, I, uh, for the last few years I've been involved in trying to help people understand their behaviours to money. So this sort of financial wellbeing stuff. And um, 
it sort of led me into different places. I worked with this guy called Paul Clitheroe for about eight years. He was sort of Mr. Money back in the day. Uh, and he taught me a lot about the sort of fundamentals of how you educate people. So, um, and that sort of led me into Aon, where I am now, into the financial well-being world, which is a fascinating world and uh, a world that gets us into all sorts of different places. But the other hat that I took on was the hat of working out how do you actually <coughs> help HR? Because Aon has so much information around risk and what could possibly go wrong, and HR doesn't really get to see any of this stuff. So Aon, you might know as Aon Hewitt, they had, they had the engagement survey and they do all this other sort of HR consulting stuff. Um, but we really didn't sort of communicate the fact that there's a whole bunch of risks out there that you guys could learn. And if you learnt them well, you could possibly get better business cases and get things approved by doing it through the lens of risk. So that's what I'm going to show you today is how we sort of put this together. Um, and maybe some Q&A at the end. Now, the first question I want to ask is, um, can everybody see the whiteboard? And Jeff's gonna tell me if I stand in front of anything. So these circles are, uh, represent the five top risks that companies from all around the world have told Aon in the last six months. So we surveyed 2,600 companies across 60 countries, 33 industries. And we came up with a list of 70 risks and I've cut them down to the Australian top 10 and then I've taken the five that relate to employees out to share with you. Because these risks could become the agenda for how you converse with leaders in business. So the first risk is damage to brand and reputation. That's been in the top three for the last five years. It's a big one, just ask the banks. Um, the second one is cyber. Now cyber is an interesting one because um, uh, Aon provides insurance for cyber and the claims are an interesting uh, piece of data. 80% of claims come from employees inside the organisation, doing dumb cyber stuff. The malicious part though is 28%. So a third of your business are sneaky, lying bastards. <laughs> Cyber's a really scary one. Business interruption. Now business interruption in Aeon's world used to be an insurable event. So, you know, volcano or the bloody building falls down or something happens, you can insure against it. Business interruption in employee land is if you hire a crap manager. You hire a crap manager and your business gets interrupted for ages. So business interruption is an interesting one. Failure to attract and retain talent. That's been in the top 10 for many years. It's predicted to become even higher up over the next three years. Failure to attract and retain talent. <coughs> this one here relates to this, but sort of does, sort of doesn't. And it's failure to innovate to meet client needs. Now that one has come into the top 10. Why? Because everything's changing. 
So one of the biggest risks that when you talk to organisations is that they may be able to think about innovation, but they're really rubbish at executing. So you've got to sort of think that's got to be a risk. You know, he's an ideas man, but he's not executing. And this one here, which is not in the top 10, but it's worth thinking about, is the whole issue of future of work. Or what jobs are going to go, when are they going to go, and what are the skills that we'll need to do the new type job? And consulting, that's a whole industry now. Have you noticed that? You know, that all the major consulting houses are trying to work out how they can help you to identify when that job's going to disappear and what skills are needed for the replacement job, if there is a replacement job. So I find that fascinating. And that's kind of, that's our little sort of scorecard, if you like. So what we've been doing is we've been going to organisations, small, medium and large, and saying, how about we get HR, risk, and the leader of the business in the room together? And we'll have a conversation about people and risk. How hard do you think that's been to get all those people in a room? They don't even know each other. <laughs> it's almost like you've got to introduce them. It's actually a gift. You could walk away after this, you've started the party and say, look, I've just done my job. But this is a really important thing. Because if you just have HR in the room, what happens is HR looks at all this stuff and says, I'm not, I'm not getting cut through on some of this gear because I'm, I can only do so much. So to be able to open it up to risk and finance, if you can get finance in there, and leaders, it becomes magical because everybody's got a different lens. And the takeaway is that you have a business case that is wrapped around risk and risk mitigation. Way more powerful from an HR point of view. When we first started to do this and talk to HR, they were going, eh, I don't want this because I know what they're going to say and you know, it's all that sort of stuff. But in reality, um, it's, it's actually helping HR because we're the mouthpiece. There's two very new HR directors in town. I can't tell you who they are, but both of them have very big jobs. One of them is a complete new world, coming into a new world. And what they are doing are looking at this and saying, guys, can you do this for us? So you can ask the tough questions and I will do my due diligence through this. So this is quite interesting. So one of the keys is that we've got some amazing data and I'll give you the website so you can look at more of that stuff. So we've got evidence around this, this gear, but the real magic is getting the right people in the room and different perspectives, and different eyes on the same problem. So how we kind of paint the picture is we just do a simple employee journey. And we say, when could a risk pop up? You know, what could possibly go wrong? Um, but the first thing we do is we paint these two pictures. And these two pictures are the business strategy and the people strategy. <coughs> Funny old thing, these people often don't know what the people strategy is. Or has it, who's been involved in an M&A? Where the last possible thing they start thinking about is the people strategy. You know, and that's the thing that drives the bus. So what we say is, have you got 
a gap between the business strategy and the people strategy. So the business strategy says we want to grow through organic growth by 30%. But the people strategy is a lag. We're still employing the same people. So this tests this idea. And what we say is if there's a lag there, where does it hit here? Well, it hits here in failure to attract the right people. It certainly hits here, failure to innovate, because you've got the wrong people. It interrupts the business, and it could muck your brand up. Because externally, the brand is about how good you are executing. You know, when you're positioning people in the business, you want a brand that has, has some sort of oomph in it. That's what people are looking for. So that starts the conversation. And then we just do a journey. So here's the employee journey. This is, this is the joining part. And this is the leaving part. And so we just put lenses on this journey. And it's quite fascinating when you start to just talk about the journey, how these people start to get animated. So the first thing we say is uh, the three letters, EVP. And we say, does that thing relate to that thing? And in a lot of cases, it doesn't. So the employee value proposition, we see this in healthcare a lot. Healthcare, predominant number of employees are female, yet the EVP doesn't talk to females. So you can see there's these gaps and it starts to work it out. And if your EVP is lagging, your reputation out there comes out. Because people who leave tell the market that the EVP is <coughs> bullshit. So that's how it works. So some of the little things, I'll just take you through some of the things that we sort of touch on that are of interest. The big one here is behaviour. The great question to ask is, what is the behaviour you don't want in the organisation? Give us a list of things you don't want. The Sydney Swans have a fantastic one. Do you know what it is? It's no dickheads. <laughs> and it's really easy to quantify. Because we've all met a dickhead. So we know we don't want to meet another one. Um, so behaviour is interesting because you can uh, start to think about how behaviour can impact a whole bunch of other things. And it's what you don't want. Because they say the behavior that you walk past is the behavior you accept. And even this week, there was a company that was sued for 1.4 million for bad behavior from 15 years ago. Harassment. And this bloke was a bastard. And he got away with it because he was a big sales guy. The behaviour we walk past is the behaviour we accept. And if the Banking Royal Commission did anything, it put the spotlight on behaviour. The other one is salary. This is an interesting one because it's 70% of the bill. And yet, if you get it even a little bit wrong, either way, you cause trouble. You pay too much, you have a prisoner in the joint. He'll never leave. If you pay too little, you've got disengaged people. It's, it's the dark art, isn't it, Lydia? The dark art of salary. Um, so salary is interesting. But salary and then incentive design. Incentives became uh, a big part under the microscope because uh, poor behaviours driven by poor incentive design. So we're starting to see that incentive is now about something beyond the financials. Now that's difficult. That's a change for some businesses because some businesses just live off the numbers and they can't move away from numbers. So incentive design and behaviour sit almost next door to each other. 
The next thing that we test when we start to look at risks, and of course we're, we're starting to build bad behavior, brand and reputation, cyber, business interruption, you can't innovate, and you don't really want them. You don't want this bad behavior. Good behavior, it's the opposite. The next thing is pay. I don't know whether you've noticed, but pay's been pretty flat. For what, five years? Yeah, five years. So the pay story is a hard one to even sell. You know, it's 3% again, 2.99. Um, but salary's tough. So when pay is flat, the only thing that can offset pay, apart from a good EVP, is benefits. So we call benefits the new pay rise. But most companies, I do a little test, and I say, one to 10, rate your benefits on four, three things. Number one, relevance. I'm lucky to get a three on relevance. <laughs> Communication. It's hidden in the internet. If you want to hide anything, the biggest secret in the world, stick it in the internet. No one will ever find it. They say Harold Holt's in there. So communication's the other one. You don't get past three. You never get past three on communication. And this is out of 10. And the last one is measurement. So we ask this group, just imagine asking them. You get different answers, but you never get much more than three or four for any of them. Measurement, how do you measure benefits? Well, how do you not measure benefits if you're paying for them? The last one that I think is really important too is sustainability. You can't bring a benefit in and take it away. This is the banana test. Have you ever taken the bananas away? Yeah, it hurts. You don't take those bananas away. I think in Aeon, we're getting weaned out of the bananas because they're just getting worse. They're just tasting worse. <laughs> Eventually, we don't want them. So benefits is an interesting one. And the last bit in this sort of attraction bit is reputation. So what we ask is, what reputation are you as an employer out there? This is your world. What's the reputation like? Not around the quality of the services you provide, but more around what it's like to be there. What do people say about the leaders? What do people say when they leave? What do people say to these guys? And what you find is that reputation is a very interesting one. And that's where you can start talking about gender pay equity, diversity and inclusion. You can start to bring these things to life instead of them being token sort of comments. This is a very powerful piece. And what we like to do is get people to bring the reputation story to life and tell us what they think their reputation is. We did this for a law firm. Second tier, but just at the top of the second tier, they said to us, we said, you know, what happens when somebody leaves your organisation? And their comment was, they're dead to us. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, how's your reputation? I said, well, you know, um, it's funny, nobody sort of leaves and goes to another law firm after they've worked for us. See, because you've turned them off it. But what do the recruiters say about you? Oh, they reckon we're awful. So what's their, I mean, they're, and they know this is terrible. But at least they admitted it. Some people don't admit this. So this is fascinating. I'll quickly go through some of the things that you do around looking after people inside. And one of them is productivity. What's the risk of productivity? And I think the one that stands out the most, this is the witness box, is the manager. All roads lead to the manager. So 
What are we asking managers to do these days? We're asking them to be the custodian of everything. They're the custodian of well-being. they're the custodian of engagement, they're the custodian of the P&L, of the difficult decisions, of the performance, of the this, of the that, of this, that, 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 that. Global warming, everything. <laughs> they got everything. And then, and then, which makes it even more sad, I oh, know. They're also on the tools themselves. We don't tell managers to just manage and not do the work. We're asking most managers to actually do the work as well. And then, worse, you want some of them to be leaders. And there's a whole bunch of skills around leadership that are different to managers. You know, to be able to get into the helicopter and look over to be able to communicate things in a way that people understand, to trust. Leaders are different to managers and managers have handlebar moustaches. <laughs> That's the correlation. So this is difficult. So one of the things that we suggest is you might want to just check in on these people, give them a hug occasionally, but also find out if they've got the skills to be able to do all this stuff. You know, you, you all know about assessment tools that can test for capability, but you might want to just test in every so often because they're drowning. Poor engagement scores are usually because this is not working. They might say it's something else, but it's this. So our view is if you want a productive workplace, start with the manager and work your way into other places. Some interesting other things we see is are you creating the environment for people to thrive? So uh, can the guns thrive? You know, the ones that are really good. Because if you look at the career ladder, it goes that way, doesn't it? Ladders go up, unless you're Molly Meldrum and it comes down. Um, there's too many people on the bloody ladder. All these guys want to get on the ladder. So the ladder falls over. And everybody falls except the strongest ones who smash everybody down. The career ladder is shaky. So what you're seeing is people are starting to create workflows where pe good people can go on a climbing wall where they go across, then up, and across, and up. The challenge there, of course, is how do you incentivize them and pay them, the pay situation. But we're seeing more and more of this idea that not, you can't have everybody on the ladder because it falls. And what impacts that is that you start to get people falling over. The last thing I'd say about managers though, and it relates to cyber, and it relates to failure to innovate. And that is that are managers digitally ready? Do they actually understand what's happening this year, this minute? And what you find is they're way behind in some cases. And what happens is that exposes that and it exposes that because they just don't know what they're approving. They don't know how to be innovative. So we think that's a massive risk. Conduct is probably the last piece I'll talk about in relation to this journey and conduct is really about working out is it a safe place for people to have their say? The Me Too movement is moving and sweeping across the globe Australian companies are challenged by it because the Australian culture is don't dob. 
And yet, we're actually saying to people, it's okay to dob. We're calling it something else, but actually we're, we're changing the psyche. It's, it's really challenging. So organisations that uh, haven't got the speak up bit worked out are in trouble with brand and reputation big time. They're also in trouble potentially with cyber and across the board there's all these different risks because people don't feel as though they can speak up. It's a massive risk. And you know what? You get four different answers sometimes to that question. It is such a hot topic and it's challenging. We, we're not talking about it. We should be talking about it. And finally, when people leave, what do you do with them? So when somebody uh, voluntarily or involuntarily moves out, what we find is most companies do a rubbish job of it. But who are these people? They are going to be a promoter or a detractor. But where are they? What, who are they? They're going to have a friend back here. So if they're a detractor, you're in trouble. They could become a client or a customer. You're in trouble again if they're a detractor. They could become part of your community. Trouble again. They could be your talent pool for the future. Over here, once again, if they're detractors, good luck getting back. We call those the boomerangs. You know, these guys that come back. And we, I mean, in our organisation, we see a fair few boomerangs, so obviously we're okay here. But I haven't really seen okay. I've seen probably meh around this, but not really okay. So our suggestion is you start thinking of different ways of treating people with respect. And one of them is to extend their benefits for a bit longer after they leave. It's not going to kill you to pay for six months more EAP. It's not going to kill you to tell people that they've actually got insurance that they can keep going so that their families are protected. Now, we find it difficult to get organisations to just tell us when people are leaving so we can look after them when they're gone. It's ridiculous. It's a big risk. So this alumni thing is really important. And if they go to a competitor and they've still got contacts, they can hopefully discuss They do. They eat you for breakfast. <laughs> Detractors are really not good. And yet it's not much you do here. But I've talked to a lot of organisations who can't get their head around it because they want to just move the problem out. So I think we've got to get, this is why when you get these people in a room, they start to get it. And they start to then invest more in things like better outplacement programs, better education around the benefits that you can take with you. It's a really big thing. And probably to wrap all this up, um, what we think is really a great win for an organisation is to get their head around the concept of well-being. Well-being is a word that gets used in every organisation, yet how do you define it? It's just a word for some. So you've got to start to think, well, what's the essence of well-being? And well-being is that people who feel good work better. That's it. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so how do they feel better? Well, they feel better emotionally or physically, socially or financially. So if you can create a world where people feel better at work, you've ticked off well-being. <laughs> and we think one of the quickest wins is to have a look at benefits number one and see whether the benefits actually work towards well-being 
or work away from well-being. So an example of that is you might say, here's the spearhead of your well-being program. Like Lend-Lease has a great well-being leave program. Has anyone seen it? Yep, you've seen it. So that's, it's not Doona Day. It's actually, you've got to, you've got to apply for it. Uh, it. It goes through Workday and your manager has to approve it, but they may not approve the day because it might be against the working cycle. But that's the spearhead of their well-being. And behind it, they then start to put other things. You know, not them, but other companies put top-up maternity leave cover. So your super is topped up while you're on mat leave. That's cheap. We have actuaries that work that out and it's as cheap as chips. Yet it becomes a high value benefit and it kills this thing beautifully. Not kills it, that's the wrong word. Enhances it. <laughs> so thinking about well-being is thinking about what you've already got and moving it around a little bit. One of the things around well-being too is travel. Travel is the most popular pastime no matter what age you are in the workforce. So how about putting travel into some context? Who's from Travel Edge? Da, da, da. Now these guys um, do corporate travel, the biggest non-international player in the market, but you also do things around travel incentives for employees, which I think is really cool, because then you can start to add it to this conversation. It goes towards your well-being. We think professional development is well-being. Being able to do, we're just doing a deal with open universities where um, you can learn new stuff. It makes you feel better because it gives you options. Well-being is not just the things you think it is. It's a whole range of things. And then all of a sudden you start having a well-being conversation where you say, well, when you leave home, we'll give you a discount on Uber. When you get to the Qantas Club, we'll give you a uh, half price at the Qantas Club. When you sit on the plane, we can, you know, we'll do something there. I don't think we can, that's impossible. Um, <laughs> at the other end, you can. You oh, underestimate. Oh, look. Seriously? This is lovely. Business yeah, yeah. Oh, is there another class? Wait, what is that other class called? Um, oh, yeah, second class. Yeah. Um, but you start, to, you start to think about different ways. This is a cheap win. Different ways. Even Lend Lease, when they gave three well-being days, it hasn't cost them a cent because they weren't, they weren't really counting every sick day and non-productive days. But what it's done is puts, puts them in front of their industry because they've got stories they tell. You know, the CEO was the first one that took his well-being day and took his kids to play golf or something. You know, there's people doing all sorts of things. You know, working mums who said, I just went to the movies on my own. Remembering, oh, loser. <laughs> but to be able to go to the movies on your own when you've got three yapping kids is amazing. <laughs> it's what well-being's about. My first HR job was in insurance and we were given back then, 15 years ago, $100 a year to spend on something. Gym membership, yeah. classes, whatever. And everyone took it up. It's just, you know, these things aren't expensive. You know, you're super fun. Like, we're into super. And our fund offers a whole range of counselling services if you're a member. And you can take this with you. Things like legal uh, counselling, accounting, funeral. 
I don't know what funeral is it funeral it is funeral isn't it uh, estate planning no that's before funeral um, <laughs> but you know it's it's all these things that you can start to bring to life and categorize them as well-being rather than hiding them in the internet or calling them something else so the super fund you pay nine and a half everyone has to yet most of them are asleep yet if you think about it it's the probably the the only thing that most people have got you know big bloody mortgage a bit of money in super and some insurance that's it gone so why not bring it to life make it the signature benefit that sits proudly in well-being rather than sit hiding down here in the thing you know we've got one client who says super is um is not even a benefit it's just a thing we have to do but they pay, they're putting so much money into it why don't you make it bloody worthwhile it's crazy okay so there's two things i want to finish on one of them is um i think that there's some quick wins here one of the quick wins is around uh behavior have a look at some of the um the organizations that are doing behavior testing uh, contemporary stuff's gamified making it easy it's cheap if you want to test people it's a couple hundred bucks a head or something you know we've got it at our place but there's all sorts of behavior tools out there um, and it can make a huge difference when we tell these people that these tools are available HR goes well I've been trying to get them in but when you say it's going to mitigate that risk it mitigates brand and reputation behavior cyber behavior business interruption behavior attracting the right people in and holding the right people and getting rid of the ones that aren't any good failure to innovate and even ready for the future of work you can test for all these you can actually test to see if somebody will ever be engaged in their life you know some people just aren't engaged humans you know and they'll always score down we've got seven and a half thousand actuaries in our company and they're never going to give us 10 out of 10 for anything because <laughs> 10 is like nirvana and you don't get 10 and we go oh can you no i just can't do it so i think that is a pretty low cost high impact thing i think looking at your benefits through the lens of well-being <coughs> It's just about reshuffling and working out what you're paying for, even what you can get rid of. Because you'll you probably find there's stuff in benefits that's just useless and there's other good gear. And most companies have got hidden benefits that you don't even know about. So they're two things that I think are worthwhile. And then this poor bastard with the ha handlebar moustache there, um, how do we help him or her? If it's her, she doesn't have the mo. <laughs> Sorry. What do we do for that person in the witness box? The manager. How do we help that person out? Make sure they have the tools available. Tools available? Yeah. The mentoring and coaching. I find in manufacturing people get to that level because of tenure. Tenure. Or they've got the most industry experience in running that production line. Yep. We 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 play defense. So my job is to clear the way so you can do your job. Right. So oh, we dream about that. That's true. It's I true. walk in front and I clear the way. You walk in front and you clear the way. Get that on the podcast. So the idea yeah. is managers for us, they have two success criteria. One is provide direction with clarity. Mm -hmm. Everything is done sustainably and with respect. And the other is they need to grow and clear the way. Right. 
That's brilliant. I like it. Some of the other stuff that we look at too is to be able to just assess for this stuff and say, look, this person can't do half of them, so why don't you just take that shit off them? Give it to somebody else. Yeah. Other organisations say, well, how about we just have less managers, but they're just professional managers. You know, let's just have six great managers and no one else is called a manager. Sorry. <laughs> you know, and you kick the ladder out of the underneath them, because the ladder's bullshit anyway, and you just rearrange it. So you have professionals who can multitask, who are selfless. The best managers are selfless. The selfish ones are not acting on behalf, they're not clearing the way. They're putting stuff in front of people. So that's, that's kind of how it works. So that's, that's my little journey. Um, I might just finish by saying that um, my colleague Janine and I have just written a book. And it's a book called Spenditude. And its hypothesis is that we form our behaviour to money when we're seven years of age. And we don't actually start knowing that we've got a behaviour to money till we start earning money at about 16 or 17. And often we're in our 30s, 40s or 50s before we think, it's not really serving us that well, that behaviour to money. <laughs> so we then go back and say, well, if you were aware of what your behaviour to money was, you might be able to change some habits along the way. Spenditude. It's going to become a noun. <laughs> In the Oxford Dictionary next year. Bloody oath. That's the, that's the thing. So um, it's out next month. So that's it. Does anyone have any questions they want to ask or have? Yes. So one of the things we know about behavioural economics, and this is why this argument is excellent, is that loss aversion, has everyone heard of loss aversion? Loss aversion, yeah. And so loss aversion is remembered in a human twice as powerful than um, any benefits yeah. you get. So positioning an argument from loss makes it more memorable and gets more input. So this is genius because of that. And by the way, you have no control over it, so just do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bias. So yeah. pain you remember twice as much as um, the pleasure. Yeah. So we're defined by pleasure but remember pain. So yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah. We're, we're finding, I mean, as a business, we're going into organisations not charging for this because it's beautiful discovery. The honour of having the leaders of the business open up and tell you what their business is means that as consultants, we can start working out how to help them. And AON can't help with all this stuff, but it gives us a chance to find things out that um, they don't know. I mean, this is the you don't know what you don't know conversation. So, so Paul, for the people in the room who like the detail, the, the risk survey you talked about earlier, yeah. do we just, is that a whole report we can download? Yeah, you can, and I've got the, um, I wrote it down somewhere, because I knew somebody like you would ask that question. Um, <laughs> I did. I'll write it up here so that you can download it. I find it fascinating. The, the, the last risk this year could be the top 10 in a year's time, and that's cryptocurrency. So it's down at 69 now, but you can't imagine that crypto is going to stay at way down there. Because with blockchain technology and crypto and Facebook, and Facebook these things are moving up. So the top, it's worth having a look at the top risks. You don't have to write WW anymore, do you? No, not really. I'll just do, like doing it. So the top risks will become your competitive advantage if you're in Earl. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Dot com. 
for the podcast, it's aon.com, A-O-N.com, 2019, or slash, forward slash, global risk. Yeah, it's a global risk management survey. Yeah, and it's every two years. It's the most comprehensive one of its type. And we've hijacked it away from the insurance people and converted it into people risk. How clever are we? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Have a drink. <laughs>